So Chinese, Vietnamese, New Year, Year of the Dragon. And then people come and they like to get a blessing for long life, health, strength, beauty, happiness, success. And they may be hoping for a little medallion, uh, other no, auspicious items. No, but this is not what the Buddha actually recommended. He actually says that for an Upasaka, an Upasaka, and someone who is a disciple of the Buddha, to rely on Mangala, on blessings and auspicious items, auspicious times, auspicious constellations, uh, auspicious figurations, and so on, all these different ways of looking for good fortune, now that this is actually a, a blemish. What should we rely on instead? We should rely on the principle of karma, karma, actions. Now the actions we do and then the results uh, that come as consequence of these actions, now the law of karma. This is a little bit less convenient because we have to do something ourselves. It's easier not to get sprinkled with some holy water or to be given some amulet or to get some spell or to pay an astrologer to work out the most auspicious time when to do what. It's more difficult, as the Buddha said, atahi atano nato kohi anyo nato siya. We ourselves have to be our protector. We ourselves have to be our savior, and who else could do that for us? Akatara, Akataro Tathagata, the Tathagatas only show the way. The Buddha can't drag you to happiness and Nibbana. He can only point out to us what, what we have to do to create our own happiness or, or misfortune if we do the wrong things. Atta dipa viharata atta sadhana ananya sadhana dhamma dipa viharata dhamma sadhana ananya sadhana and then live with yourself as an island with yourself as a as a lamp as a light without any other island live with dhamma as a light as an island with no other Refuge, no, but with Dhamma as a refuge. Dhamma and ourselves, based on the instructions of the Buddha and the doing, what creates good karma. So, what people, what do usually people hope for for the new year? Long life. No? That's a good one. So, how do we get long life? which pavitta to recite. It's not so much about reciting a certain pavitta, but it's about keeping the first precepts. The karmic consequence of killing, as the Buddha himself pointed out, if we are lucky enough that we make it to another human rebirth, there is a short life shortened lifespan. 
Of course, this is if there is sufficient supportive karma that we are even reborn as a human. There's a tendency for the act of killing to induce a rebirth among the hungry ghosts, the animals, or even in the hellbell. But even supposing that there is a human rebirth due to supportive karma, what minimum effect will always be there that the lifespan gets shortened from the act of killing other beings. On the other hand, if we protect other beings, if we don't kill as an absolute commitment, the result is the full lifespan, a long lifespan, a long life. People like to be in good health, strong, healthy, energetic. So what do you think? If we commit actions of harming and hurting other beings, damaging other beings' health, is that what leads to a healthy, strong rebirth? No. If we are hurting and harming others, now the karmic result is that we will be sick, sickly, ill, all kinds of health problems. So very easy, you know what to do, and not hurting and harming anyone. And of course, no one can even go beyond that to deliberately create supportive karma, to help other beings to recover from illness. Going there, and, and even if you're not professional doctors or nurses or therapists and so on, we can uh, even just cook some food when someone is sick. They may find that difficult, uh, cooking some food, bringing it there, uh, helping them to get medication, uh, helping them, getting them to the doctor, helping them and supporting them when they are sick. Now this creates another you know, karma that we are in particular good health. Uh, similar, anything that we do you know, to extend the lifespan of other beings, you know, that is an act that will extend you know, our own lifespan. I sometimes enjoy doing that you know, when you have an insect trapped somewhere, and you know, even just when I close up here, sometimes an insect gets trapped between the external mozzie screen and the glass door. And they will usually not survive that very long, but it's a little bit of a hassle trying to get them out. And obviously if they get trapped there, there's no intention on my part to kill them. And I wouldn't be breaking any precepts. But sometimes I like to make this extra effort when they're trapped or something and just release them and I feel quite happy. And I think now, okay, one more being that uh, having having saved a life, it just feels good, even if it's just an insect. Have you tried that out? Yeah. Do you feel that as well? It's good, no? Yeah. Someone once told me one of the kind of key experiences in this person's life was when they did a first aid course quite an extensive one, 
And actually not that much later, someone had a heart attack and this person uh, administered first help, I think including, how do you call that, CPR? CPR, and the person survived. And they were so happy and they felt that that was maybe the, one of the most meaningful things they had done in their life. People usually prefer to be rich. Is that your preference or impoverished? What do you like better? And most people like to be maybe not billionaires, but at least wealthy. And of course, there is a certain karma that causes a loss of possessions and poverty. What is the karma? that causes loss of possessions? What's the karma to cause poverty? Stealing, hmm? Stealing exactly, you know, breaking the second precept. Now, the karmic consequence, if we are lucky enough to make it to a human rebirth, is that we will experience the loss of possessions as a consequence from stealing. And it's quite Fascinating to see, you know, sometimes in disasters. I think when I was away, there was a major cyclone, or another. I mean, the the remainder of the cyclone. We don't get the full thing usually in southern Queensland. But the heavy storms at the Gold Coast, you know, end of December. Someone just mentioned that to me. And it's fascinating how you sometimes see in you know, one house gets flooded, another one not. And a fire many houses destroyed, and this one house being lucky. If we have to really divorce ourselves from this idea of good and bad luck, this is really kind of wrong view. If we understand the teaching of the Buddha, it's not good or bad luck. What we call good luck is good karma. What we call bad luck is bad karma. And when a person ends up in the situation that seemingly, miraculously, their property is spared. Now, for sure, there's a karmic reason for that. And if it's just a property that is destroyed, one karmic cause could have been breaking the second precept, the stealing in the past life, and then we experience the loss of property. If we keep the second precept, we never take what is not given. Now the result is that our property is safe. So many people are concerned about you know, all these burglaries, very common. Fair enough, you know, if you build in your house you know, with security locks and security screens and make sure everything is locked. But it's also good you know, to go a little bit deeper and uh, keep the second precinct very diligently. If you are reborn in Devaloka, then no one steals from you. On the other hand, if you are really stingy and materialistic and only you know, try to satisfy our material greed, what is the typical result of that? Someone who is not really that evil or anything, but also not doing anything particular good and just being motivated by material greed acquisitiveness, stinginess, 
But that's a classic one for rebirth as a hungry ghost. And then the result is they're totally dependent on the charity of other people. Now this is a sharing we do, because if they are in the ghost realm, they're often physically unable to satisfy their most existential needs themselves. As a fascinating karmic result of totally not caring about others and only trying to satisfy one's own, one's own egotistical, in particular, materialistic needs. And then as a result, you're in a situation where you totally depend on others and helping you. On the other hand, if you're really generous, if you're giving, sharing, supporting the Sangha, supporting you know, those in misfortune who depend on charity and so on. Helping others and looking after family and relatives, that's also a form of generosity. The result is even rebirth in heavenly realms where you're never lacking anything for the whole long lifespan. What is the result of being reborn in high society? Posh, highly respected. It's actually not so popular in Australia. It's a very egalitarian society. But by and large, you know, people usually still prefer you know, to be in a socially you know, respectable and appreciated position rather than in the you know, look down on. So we want to be high-born, we have to lower ourselves. Each time you bow and pay respects to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, you create the karma that you will be later respected and end up in an appreciated and high and respected position. Any time we act in an arrogant, haughty, big-headed, looking down on others. The karmic result is that this is how we end up being in a position where others look down on us. So it's a good practice, bowing. Do you all bow to your shrine at least once a day? Good practice. First of all, having a shrine and then bowing at least once a day. But of course, there's no upper limit really. You can bow many, many times. And if it's done with the intention of expressing one's respect and admiration and deference and so on to Buddha Dhamma Sangha, which are supremely worthy of that, the result is that we will be in a high position. People will respect us. So if you feel insufficiently respected, some people feel that they should respect me more, and do you know that feeling? It's usually difficult to instill respect in people by demanding it and nagging about being more respected. It tends not to work very well. If you think of it, would you respond to that? Someone demanding to be respected, would you then feel genuine respect? The Buddha never asked anyone 
No, he's the most worthy of respect in the whole universe. Nobody would never tell anyone, you have to respect me or anything like that. But the fact that he was so highly worshipped and uh, respected and admired as a result of Kama over many lifetimes, you know, loving oneself and respecting those who are worthy of respect. Another interesting one is people not listening. Some people complain they should respect me more. Others complain they're not really listening to me. I tell them, can you get these little shopping done on the way from work and they forget it. Can you bring out the garbage bin and they don't bring out the garbage bin and you remind them and they don't bring them out. And then they get a little bit upset and why don't they listen to me? What is a karmic cause the Buddha pointed out for people not listening to you? You know that one? That one's maybe not quite so easy. Many of the ones I mentioned, even if you haven't studied that sutta, you probably can guess them, but that one is maybe not quite so clear. Hmm? Your fourth precept is always good, yes. But the Buddha pointed out for this one even more specifically one of the other factors of white speech. There are four factors of white speech. The one is not lying. Aha, exactly. Sampapalapa. That's a Pali term. Even if you're not a Pali scholar, you may be able to figure out what is the meaning of Sampapalapa. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Idle chatter. We're just chewing people's ears off, nagging, talking endlessly, repeatedly, going in circles. And then did you hear that he said, when she did that, that she said, that he had done that because she said that he had said that. Can you believe it? Blah, blah, blah. And the latest from celebrity gossips, that celebrity being upset with that celebrity because the other celebrity, blah, blah, blah. And then chatting about that, sharing that on social media. Now this is talk that is not connected no, with a real purpose. Karmic consequence, people not listening. doesn't always mean that this is the only one, but this is one the Buddha pointed out specifically as leading in that direction. It's not necessarily that this is the only one, but that it could be an important karmic cause for that. On the other hand, if we talk connected with Dhamma, connected with benefit, pariyantavating, knowing the limit, not keeping on going our after, after our uh, reasonable, rational, logical, makes sense, has meaning, is connected with the Dhamma, it's connected with uh, achieving some real benefit. Uh, 
and at other times we may just keep silent. When uh, at Vatpanana Chat, the most senior monk living there when I visited was actually Venerable Bodhipalo. And he's got quite elderly, I think he's in his late 70s or something. And he would often not come out for the meal because his, also his health isn't so good and I think he had to fall. And he was always in a, a very much in a hermit, very aromitical, and he wouldn't do much teaching. But then by surprise, he was happy there over Christmas, New Year, to do an informal session, uh, mostly with the uh, lay visitors. But it was the first time anyone could remember that he would do a kind of Dhamma sharing session. Quite a few of the monks went as well. I went there as well. Because as someone who normally doesn't speak, it's actually then interesting when they speak. Someone who's just babbling on the continuously, and it's just like you have to switch off. It's like this radio in the background. So sometimes if we want to be listened more counterintuitively, a good way can be having more noble silence. Have you heard the term inflation? terms of money? What does it mean, inflation? Money loses value, ne? Prices go up. Now what happens, ne? money can die nowadays, it can easily be created. Ne? For example, you could just print banknotes and give everyone a million dollars in Australia in a, in a suitcase. Would that mean that we are all rich millionaires now if you do that? What happens? Exactly, and if everyone has millions, then everyone will be happy you know, to pay high prices and the prices will just go up and there's no supply you know, to satisfy that all the prices go up. You get the simile or it's the same with speech? Um, unfortunately, when people feel they're not listened to, they often uh, do the opposite, and they talk more and more, and they're trying to get listened to by talking more and more, and then you may get uh, that effect. Someone mentioned uh, the other factor of wrong speech, and a harsh speech, speaking loud, yelling, screaming, the pitch of one's voice, yelling, the four-letter words, cursing, what is the karmic consequence? And we'll hear unpleasant sounds. <laughs> fairly, fairly easy one. The Buddha doesn't elaborate whether that's necessarily speech or maybe also that you're suffering from having construction noise where you live or something like that. In any way, that is the consequence. And if we are speaking friendly, polite, gentle, based on metta, ear um, words that go down easily, that people break up their ears, it's pleasant to listen. Now the result is that we will have hear very sweet sounds and have people and also talking to us nicely as a karmic consequence. 
Malika mentioned lying. Do you know what's the karmic consequence of lying? Again, this is always under the proviso that we actually make it to a human rebirth. All these serious things, like breaking the five precepts, have a tendency that we may not be reborn as a human or deva, but in the ghost, animal, or hell realms. But assuming there's enough supportive karma, despite us maybe lying a bit or a lot, and we still make it to a human rebirth, what is a karmic consequence? Yeah? Karmic consequence of lying, yeah. Why are you behind the screen? Aha, okay. I just felt it looks, you look so uh, pushed out or something. Do you know what's the karmic consequence of lying? Yeah, abhuta akana. Abhuta akana. The false accusations. And it's fascinating that some people experience that. That you know, they, they get accused you know, of stuff that is completely wrong. Other people may never experience that in their whole life or very, very rare or light. Now, one consequence of that can be in the, uh, lying. There's another important factor of white speech. So we had avoiding lying and speaking truthfully. We had avoiding some papalapa, blah, blah, blah. And that doesn't have to be verbal blah, blah, blah with your lips. A lot of the some papalapa nowadays is by typing and video and TikTok, Insta, Facebook, tweeting, which now is Xing. What what is it now? What do you do on X? Xing, Xing a person usually has a different meaning. Anyway, you know what I mean. This is a lot of the sampapalapa going on. Then we had a harsh speech compared to a polite, friendly, gentle speech. There's a fourth one. Exactly. What does it mean? Exactly, in the creating disharmony and rifts between people and groups. Interesting, the gossip often implies in English that it's uh, also lying, that it's false. But then it would come more under lying or maybe covering both. But what the Buddha particularly refers to here is actually being totally truthful, but still doing that in such a way that others may experience a rift. For example, it's not uncommon that if we are upset or disappointed with a person, we may say something negative about X. And um, maybe I'm angry and then I say X. And it's always so uh, stingy or stupid or whatever. Now you overhear that and then you go to X and say, oh, do you know what he said about you? 
And then they say, oh, I always, I always knew that Damasia is no good. And then you sneakily go back. And you tell me, oh, this person thinks you're no good. And then the next time that we meet up, there's this uh, a bit cold feeling. And if you do that very skillfully, then you can create huge problems between people, also between whole groups, between communities. Now that is, as you said, no divisive speech, divisive speech, dividing people, creating rifts and uh, disharmony. The worst in that form is creating uh, schism or rifts in the Sangha. That's the worst you can do in that regard. On the other hand, if we do the opposite, there's this great good karma, we shouldn't underestimate that. If you notice that two people have a little problem, and then you go and report that this person has actually said something positive, and then the other one is a bit surprised. Oh, no, they say something positive about me. Yeah, he's really difficult, but I have to acknowledge that they're really generous, and then you report that back. Did you know that B who always, you know, always find so difficult? Now recently they said no, that, that you are so generous and they really admire that. And then you can go in between you know, with this kind of messages. And the next time these people meet, you know, they will feel much happier with each other. And the same they can be extended to whole groups. Third precept, being loyal and faithful to one's spouse or partner. What's the consequence the Buddha pointed out for breaking the third precept? Amazing that people don't know these things. Good we are talking about that. A lot of that one can already encounter in this life. One doesn't necessarily have to wait for these karmic consequences for the next life. A really heavy karma often kicks in fully at the next rebirth or even later. But there's often also in this life already something noticeable. Now the Buddha pointed out enmity and hostility, experiencing enmity and hostility. And again, one can sometimes see that certain people are getting hated on without any apparent reason. They don't seem to have done anything in this life or in this situation to deserve it. But sometimes the people just seem to laugh and are hating on them. Other people, the opposite. They're just very um, popular and people tend to just like them. The Buddha pointed out, now, breaking the third precept, now, that's a karmic action that will cause us to experience enmity and hostility. On the other hand, if we keep the third precept, now, if people are now, really committed and loyal to their partner, and they don't destroy now, other relationships, now, one uh, consequence is harmony. 
Villeneuve experience more harmony and friendship in relationships, friendships, interaction and in, uh, in social interaction in general. Good argument for keeping that one. I think we covered quite a bit of ground. Uh, ah, yeah, fifth precept. Taking intoxicating drugs, and of course the most common one is alcohol. We are in the unfortunate situation that some drugs which are very bad are illegal, but one drug which is extremely bad is unfortunately not illegal, but is used as if it's all good and fine and is advertised and sometimes even presented as if it's something good and refined and a sign of a refined taste, and that is alcohol, including the... Uh, 20-year-old expensive whiskey or super expensive champagne is basically poison. It's quite fascinating that at 0.5 you can't drive anymore. Ne? What is the limit here in Australia? Legal limit for driving? 0.5, ne? Hmm? Or five, ne? Or five. And I think if you are not at O five but at two, then you are really sloshed. And I think at four, most people will be dead. And it's amazing that people would take a poison at half the lethal doses and call it a good night out. It would seem insane if I, if I show you some, say, strychnine or arsenic, and I suggest, no, okay, one milligram will kill the average person. So now take half a milligram and you will feel quite funny and it's really nice. Would you feel inclined taking that, half the lethal doses of a poison? Usually not, no. But with alcohol, people are willing to do that. It's amazing. However, what is the karmic consequence uh, Buddha warned? If we still make it to human rebirth, but we have been breaking the fifth precept, drinking, getting intoxicated, using speed and uppers and downers, and ecstasy and pills and whatnot. Exactly, yeah. The mental disorder, insanity. And I think it's no coincidence that in our society the mental disorders are increasing and at the same time uh, alcohol and drug consumption is so high. Not saying it's the only cause, but I think it's a quite visible correlation and I can see it in this life. Everyone knows that drinking lots of alcohol is not conducive to good mental health and similar with the other drugs. Some can cause, the LSD can cause, if you're unlucky, you know, in first usage, psychosis. But even uh, weed, the hashish, marijuana, to my best of my knowledge, it can uh, trigger the mental problems in some people. Yeah, someone is asking if we do metta bhavana, if we develop the meditation of loving kindness, whether that will additionally help us you know, to have all this good karma, success and beauty. Uh, 
Ja, dat is man, hij heeft vergeten, of hij heeft God gehad. Maar wat is uh, karma voor being handsome, beautiful, good looking? Je wil een beetje Elvis of little Taylor. Zo'n <laughs> model looks. Now what, what do you do when, when you do a selfie of someone does, does a photo? Do you frown at them? Is that how you look for looking good on the photo? Smiling, no? yes. So uh, angry makes us ugly. It's fascinating in German that is actually etymologically the same word. To hate in German is uh, Hass and Hassen. And ugly is hässlich, so in German it's the same kind of same word for hating and being ugly. Uh, That's exactly another point the Buddha is making here. So of course the opposite, if you want to look, uh, uh, model looks attractive, the metta is the best, loving-kindness. The Buddha points out this is even a result of strongly developed Metta bhavana, even here and now, you don't even have to wait for the next rebirth. Mukhavano, vipasidati, the complexion, appearance, and will be radiant and more beautiful. But we fully kick in. Whatever we do now, we cannot really change the genetic makeup of our body, which is from our past karma. But it will fully kick in for the next rebirth. So avoiding being angry and hating people and uh, having loving kindness, being friendly, being kind. This is a common for good looks. But loving kindness is generally one of the strongest way of making good karma. Now the Buddha said now even developing loving kindness now just for one minute, or even less than one minute, on the level now of full samadhi there's even more good karma than building a whole monastery and building a whole monastery is already the greatest good karma you can make with any physical material donation so loving kindness is an excellent one if you have any doubts as we have a question before that in practice, all these things come together and give kind of mixed results where all this stuff comes together, your good karma, the different bad karmas. And metta is probably the most powerful to increase your good karma and weaken any any bad karma. Not all around. It's not only effective for looking good, it will be effective for absolutely everything. Because it's so boundless, it's so limitless. Metta is to all beings. And we can notice now how nice it feels to wish well even to one being. As we discussed, the saving the life even of one insect. And then maybe having loving kindness to one being, you really feel it strongly. And now imagine all beings in the whole universe. And you wish them all well. And this is incredible, powerful, good karma. So if this discussion has triggered some uh, wholesome hiri and some wholesome dhamma fear that maybe you have some bad karma in some of the areas mentioned. 
the point is not feeling guilty. The point is not the feeling triggered or feeling depressed now, but the point is the making a resolution not to do it in the future and then to get going in building up the store of good karma of punya. And the most powerful is in the metta meditation. If the mind is really strong and you really you know, can get a certain level of focus. As someone mentions, if one breaks the fifth precept, the bond about drinking and alcohol and other drugs that cause intoxication, it may easily lead to breaking the other precepts. That is correct. But from what I see, I think they all have a tendency to uh, reinforce each other. If you go for the third precept, they usually also drink and they lie, and in a sense it's already almost a form of stealing. And I think quite a few murders can be connected with that. What I experienced myself when I did my um, compulsive military service in Germany, which at that time fortunately was not a fighting army for decades, they hadn't been fighting for decades, so uh, it wasn't that I would run around uh, killing humans, and it would have happened at that time only for a Third World War. But still, as an organization dedicated to killing. And I noticed the stealing was rampant. You actually had a legal obligation. You had to lock and had to share in the one room with five others. And then you had your own personal little locker. And you were obliged. And you walk out of the room. You have to lock your locker. Not to give them any temptation for stealing. But stealing was still rampant. Lying was rampant, I was amazed. Uh, third precept, they would often be lacking you know, this, this, those days, not only male soldiers, they would be lacking opportunity. But in terms of speech, you know, it was absolutely awful. The way they would be uh, talking about women and so on, this is just awful. Soldiers are well known for plundering. If you have war, you have plunder. And it's also well known uh, when you have war, you always have rape. So it's quite fascinating that once you have one precept, in this case the first, an organization that was basically trained for breaking the first precept, you tend to have the others coming with it. Thieves, second precepts, they're usually not known for their honesty, isn't it? Fourth precept. And so on. So they often go together. Yeah. But the same holds true for the wholesome side. Now, once we keep precepts, and once we purify the one precept, for example, if we are really sober and we develop a strong sense of shame and conscience, because that is the most devastating consequence of alcohol and drugs. Here and now, we are eroding our sense of shame and conscience. But if we are sober and we develop a sense of shame and conscience, then we will keep all the precepts. We will do our duties and responsibilities. Hmm. Now that, that depends on your defilements. Now, how good we keep the precepts now, depends on our wide view, now, how strong that is, our conviction, and our faith and karma and the teaching of the Buddha. And then it depends on the 
relative strength of defilements and wholesome faculties. And if someone has gotten a very strong anger and hatred, they may be more in danger of breaking the first precept and they may find that one difficult. If someone has strong desires, they may find the third precept and the second precept more difficult. If someone is into delusion because alcohol is a narcotic, you're just blotting your, out your consciousness, you're blacking out, now then they may go for alcohol and drugs. If someone is self-destructive, they may pick something like crystal meth, which destroys you in a very, very short time, and may come from self-hatred. So we can't, can't answer that. It depends on the particular defilements and wholesome qualities in a person. Okay, quite a serious talk for New Year, I'm afraid. <laughs> People don't look too happy yet. Yeah, for YouTube, someone mentions, some people say it's difficult to keep precepts, but he suggests it's actually easy because you only have to not do something. I can see your logic argument, but I think in practice, not doing something is often very, very difficult. It's the same in meditation. For meditation, all you have to do is not do things. For example, not to think. But not doing things is actually very difficult because the defilements are driving us. But uh, of course we should encourage people. And one encouragement I would give, the Buddha has succeeded in refining all the most serious stuff to create bad karma with only the five precepts. And it doesn't sound to be too much, as you said, is only about not doing things. And it's only about not doing five things. I mean, of all the endless options we have, what we can do, the Buddha is only asking or recommending, he's not really asking, he's recommending out of compassion that just five we don't do. So you've got already a really good deal compared to Christianity. Ne? Only half compared to Ten Commandments, with our competitive edge. Go Buddhist, you have to keep only five. And even then, if you keep eight from time to time, then you're still two, two less. It's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. No, I'm kidding. You can't, can't compare that. Don't, don't take that too serious. It was tongue-in-cheek. But just as an encouragement to keep them. Because how many... Th things can you do in Brisbane on a weekend? It's just almost endless. And the Buddha's asks, you know, or recommending only five not to do. So I understand you want to encourage people and other one can do it, yes, yes. But not doing things can be very tough. Meditation usually shows that. Would I say that keeping the five precepts encompasses virtually all the Buddhist path? No, I would say no. Now, this is only the first of the threefold training. The threefold training encompasses the Noble Eightfold Path completely. And the threefold training is a training in virtue, precepts, 
second the training in samadhi, the mental unification, also known as concentration, samatha samadhi, and thirdly the training in wisdom, panya, insight. So keeping the five precepts would comprise the training for virtue, nasila, for the laity, but even there the Buddha actually recommend once a week to go up to eight precepts for one day. Although that is a less, um, maybe less crucial. So it only comprises you know, the first of the threefold training. The threefold training comprises the whole Buddhist practice and the whole eightfold path. If you take the Noble Eightfold Path, the right action would cover the first precept, the second, the fourth and the fifth. And then you have the right livelihood, which is specifically the same thing for your job. And then you have right speech to cover the four factors of wrong and right speech. But uh, white intention, uh, white effort, white mindfulness, white samadhi, and white view obviously goes beyond precepts. But maybe the point you're trying to make, if you train in the five precepts, it usually involves also intention, it involves white view. So by keeping the five precepts, you tend to train already uh, other of the path factors. But strictly speaking, you cannot complete the Buddhist practice by only keeping the five precepts. There's only the training in in virtue which one can do like that. But when you keep the five precepts, you will notice that you have to do considerable amounts of mental training as well. Because if you don't make the effort of abandoning unwholesome thoughts and unwholesome mind states, then we are very likely to break precepts. But abandoning these unwholesome thoughts and unwholesome mind states, this is not directly under precepts. No, that is a mental training, that is samadhi and wisdom. So they're obviously connected. You're right, no, they're connected. And you're training with them all together. It's not like you do in the 10 years precepts, 10 years samadhi, 10 years wisdom or something like that. But there's an integrated holistic training. And in order to be successful in keeping the precepts, you usually have to do a certain amount of training in samadhi and in wisdom, else it will not work. Yeah, yeah more questions, yes. Yeah, I fully agree. Someone points out, um, is it easy or difficult keep keeping precepts? And she suggests that if you're really committed in keeping all the five precepts, and once you establish yourself with that, it actually becomes easier. Rather than going through the day and then, oh, should I try or maybe make an exception now? And I totally agree. And once you're committed to it, and then others will also understand it and accept it at some stage. And then even support you or even criticize you if you were to break one because they now know you as someone keeping them. And even if they don't keep them themselves, then they will have the expectation you're someone keeping them and you should keep them. 
One more, yes. I'm happy that it generates so much interest. I was a little bit worried when I looked at the little bit sour faces after this Dhamma talk, but at least they're generating interest here. So someone suggests if one breaks the fifth precept and one gets really sloshed or intoxicated, you say then one is ill and then it doesn't count when you break the other precepts. I mean, there is certain, there is certain, um, uh, what do you call that, legally, in, in most countries, it's a kind of insanity defense, or if you didn't really know what you're doing. But I think that usually when you uh, are sloshed, you still have the intention of harming. It is also possible that you do something really without intention, and maybe you drive under the influence, and then uh, you're reacting wrongly, and then you have a car crash. In that case, no, you probably didn't have an intention. I think you still have bad karma for negligence. I think to be willfully negligent, gross negligent, or willfully negligent, I would guess that this also has still karma. But I think many uh, crimes which are committed you know, under drugs, uh, they may be clouded, you know, but they still have intention and perception that what they're doing is harming. In a sense, you can say you know, they may get out a little bit, because if they're so sloshed that they really don't know what they do anymore, but then they're making you know, the very, very bad karma of having delusion. And being very deluded you know, is a kind of worst thing you can be in. So it's not really an out. Now you may use the insanity defense to escape the criminal punishment, but I don't think calmly it will work so well. Because if you're really insane, then this is obviously you know, the worst kind of situation because then delusion is so strong that you're in incapable of practicing Dhamma. And that would be you know, even worse than having bad karma. So, but I see your point, uh, to some extent that may be the case, no, but you've got a little bit of lawyer's mind no, trying to get people out and no, breaking. It's more important no, to give good arguments, not to break the precepts. And I don't think you really get out of uh, karmic consequences. And the karmic consequence in, in itself no, of being insane is obviously the most severe, because it would be unable to practice mindfulness and so on. Okay, before it gets too tough on people, I better stop. So you know what to do to be ending on a more positive note. You know, know what to do to be attractive, handsome, long-lived, rich, wealthy, uh, harmonious relationships, uh, always hearing nice sounds and people talking nicely to you. Uh, to be uh, free from mental illness, to be very clear, sharp-minded, intelligent, sharp. Wow. <laughs> Go for it.